Tonight I'd like to talk about the no of love. A few years ago, um, the Dalai Lama, I think he came and spoke here, and I think this is where this ar arose, but I'm not positive. In any case, he was asked during a question and answer period why he stressed compassion over emptiness. And his response was uh, very simple and direct. He said, because it's safer. Now, if I can take us back to my previous talk, maybe we can get a sense of what, I'm, what he might have meant by that. When we were talking about receptivity, when we were talking about opening into radical openness, I ended that talk with saying that that radical openness was essentially love. It is also essentially emptiness. Now, tomorrow night, Christina is going to talk about that topic, emptiness. But if the self takes and catches hold of either one of those two and starts making something of it, especially if it takes a hold of emptiness, but let me, mostly I'm going to talk about if it takes a hold of love, but for, for just for a second, let's talk about what it, when it grasps a hold of emptiness. It can see the world in a very kind of dispassionate way, a way that shows that it's all kind of an illusory maya. All those words come from that perception of truth. And it can lead to and actions, or from actions, that have a disregard for the human quality because the human quality is not seen as being anything but an illusion. And sometimes gurus and people in different schools of thought get lost in that perception and a whole sense of unethical behavior can result. Someone asked me uh, today a very uh, poignant question. He said he was working with my talk, and he said, what about prejudice? He said, I don't understand how the mind can still be open and receptive within prejudice, with prejudice. And I said, it can't. It says no to prejudice. See, the no of love is the no is no, that's not. But you don't say no to the individual person who is expressing the prejudice. You say no to the behavior. You say no to that form, that expression, not to the individual. The individual holds the potential to be anything. And in that moment, the way that person is manifesting is a no. So it's not as if somehow we have to be open to prejudice but somehow we have to say yes to a prejudiced mind, or yes to murder, or yes to some of the atrocities. It's no to that. That comes from the heart. Let me read a statement of no from Martin Luther King. 
We will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. But we will soon wear you down with our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win yours in the process. Within that openness, within that receptivity, there's an extraordinary intuitive sense of trust. There's an extraordinary intuitive sense of faith. Mother Teresa, I saw a movie by Mother Teresa, of, about Mother Teresa, and she um, was, uh, during the Lebanese war, they were bombing Beirut. And there was an orphanage in Beirut that had um, disabled children, disformed disabled children. And it was being shelled. So the kids were essentially the victims of the shelling. And she said that, she she said, tomorrow we're going to go in and right in the heart of Beirut and take these children out. And she says, I'll pray tonight that the shelling stops. And it was very interesting to see the priests say, well, Mother, don't you think you should give God some time to stop the, <laughs> give him a few days to broker a, <laughs> to broker a peace agreement. And she said something, she said, God doesn't need time. 11 o'clock that night, the shelling stopped. She went in the next day, picked up the kids, left Beirut. The next day, the shelling began again. The no of love. That no isn't equivocation. It isn't the priest saying, well, let's give him a few days. Let's see what we can do here. It's, a kind, it's, a, it's an absolute no. It's not a contrived no. It's not a no of decision, a no of thought. I think it comes from the same place as creativity or the same place as where a Zen student may answer a koan. It comes from that sense of mystery. To understand where that no comes from, I think we have to understand what love is itself. So let's talk, let me talk a little bit about that. First of all, I don't think there's a subject in humankind, human history, that has been more written about or sung about, more wars have been fought over, more deaths take their toll from, than this subject of love. It's an interesting subject. And we've all had the experience of being in love. And that experience, for most of us, has been one in which there's a deep heart connection in which, for at least a brief moment of time, we hold someone else's well-being in higher regard than we do ourselves. Again, for a brief period of time. (laughs) 
And what happens is that we, it's, a, it's an enamored state. I mean, it takes us away from the solidification of being selfish and being self. And there's, it's a wondrous feeling. And we look out from that feeling to sort of say, oh, it's because of you. It's because of this relationship I'm in. It's the woman or the man or whatever. And therefore, as long as I keep you within my sphere of influence, within my power, within my relationship, I will have access to this love. But then, because as Christina said this morning, which I really enjoyed, was that all emotions are a verb, and in fact, all of life is a verb, it can't be trusted. It's not, we, we blame it on the human, the person, and perhaps there's responsibility to bear on the personal, but from the impersonal, there's fluid, there's movement, and there's change. And that person moves out of our sphere or into another or something, and we fall, what we call, out of love, never realizing that that access of love came from us, not from that person. It wasn't induced. It was just somehow, through some karmic connection, love was manifested in that connect- connectivity, but from me, from you. But we don't know that, and so we go and search for another high. We lost that one, let's find another one. And on and on we go. And we get hooked into that sense of love not being within us, but the objects, the forms and displays out there. And we keep having our own emotionality rise and fall with the advent and destruction of each relationship. And we find ourselves desolate and isolated and lonely when it's not there, and full and alive and vital when it is. Same thing happens in grief. In grief, the form of our love disappears, dies, let us say, that form of grief. And yet, for those of you who have lost someone, just for a moment, picture that person. Just hold that image of that person in your mind, in your heart. Isn't that love still there? You see, the thing that tied us, the thing that bound us together, the thing that we so much appreciated, is still with us. It's still there. We've just, circumstances have changed, forms have changed. The verb has moved on, changed tense. And yet, the love is still there. We're so insecure about that, aren't we? We're so insecure. We don't feel, it's because we can't grab it. We grab the things which arise within our love that we hold responsible for it, but we can't grab love itself. It's like grabbing the air. You see, you can't grab openness. How can you grab openness? How can you grab receptivity? And yet that is love. Let me move a little bit more into that. When, you, when we pay attention to someone, when we give someone our attention, aren't we granting them, I mean, it can be this way, 
a sort of a non-judgmental connection. When we give somebody an intention, and once we're not judging them, we're not criticizing them, the same attention that we give ourselves in meditation, right, which is the optimum environment for us to grow, awareness, self, right, which is really self-love, which is love, love and all of its bloom. So now we give it to someone else, non-judgmental attention. So we're not weighing things, we're just holding them. In the same way we hold ourselves. Aren't we granting them the environment of our own love? Isn't the greatest love the willingness to understand someone? Isn't that the greatest gift we can offer someone else? Isn't that what we all crave in the deepest recesses of our heart to be understood? That's what real love does. It provides a conduit for understanding. That's such an important point, I think. Because we think it's all the things that we do, all the ways that we employ ourselves to do something, all the tasks that we do. And that's why they grow from our therapeutic relationship or whatever. But I think it's much deeper than that. I think it's much more profound than that. I had a, a friend, and she, uh, in hospice care, she, um, she was involved with a case. And uh, this was a, a man who she connected with immediately, had a deep uh, regard for, who was dying. And uh, she spent a lot of time with him. Uh, and she offered uh, what she said her whole array of uh, social work tricks. She provided meditation on the breath, and she provided imaging, and she did counseling, and she did family counseling, and she did... Um, death perceptions and fears of death and just on and on. She just, I mean, she was quite an experienced social worker. She had this whole bag of tricks. And so she expended all of her tricks. And so um, being uh, curious as to what tricks the man liked the best, she said to him as he was approaching his death, she said, of all the things I've done, of all the things that we've done together, what was the most helpful to you? He said, the most helpful thing was that I knew that you cared. You see? <laughs> doesn't, this, doesn't the change suddenly drop to the, you know, suddenly? <laughs> but you see, it's not something you can grab. And because we lose ourselves in the forms and expressions of the world, we want to be able to grab our love. We want to be able to confirm it. We want to be able to issue forth a decree and says, this is, a demonstration of my love. Let me show you my statue, my painting, my girlfriend, something that shows and verifies something that we cannot see. And we just keep on trying that. Missing the forest for the trees. We're not so interested in love. We're interested in what love can do for us. The power grab of love. Aren't we? And therefore, we ratchet down its essential quality into a quality of mental love, of mental possession, possessiveness. 
Now that would work fine if things weren't fluid. But things are a verb. All things are a verb. All forms are a verb. And therefore they're in transition. And therefore as soon as you reach out for that they change into something else. And the despondency of where we've reached and the power and the stretch of our arms begins to get tiring. <coughs> Suddenly realized I wasn't following my notes. <laughs> now sometimes <laughs> now sometimes we get so enamored with something so it's meant so much to us that we try to sell it we try to sell the form come on everybody you don't know how important this meditation process is <laughs> tell everybody let's recruit meditators no you don't understand this is really great I just, it's so important, it's such important, I, I just, I love it, I love my minutes. When you hear that kind of passion, unbridled, look for doubt. Because the echo, the shadow of that is often doubt. When you're trying to sell, when you're trying to persuade, when you're trying to influence, which is the last reason anyone should show up in this meditation hall, by the way. This is not about proselytizing. A person has an organic readiness for coming here. And for us to try to force or pressure someone or to encourage someone because of our enthusiasm when there is none in that person can be rather difficult when that person arrives and goes through the meditation. They can scar themselves. And, and sometimes it's better just to leave than be scarred in that way. Unless one can find one's own relationship. One's own love for it. So love is not about them and us trying to convince. As story, um, I, as a director of the hospice program, I um, worked with labor unions. Worked, the nurses were in a labor union. It's the first hospice I'd ever worked with where the nurses were organized. But, and um, and we, we would do, sit down at the bargaining table, which is antithesis to hospice care, but that's another point. Anyway... <laughs> We'd sit and there would be it would be a rectangular rectangle table on all the people from the collective bargaining labor union would be on one side and management would be on the other. So one time I walked in there and said, "To hell with this! I'm going to sit on the labor union side." <laughs> so I just went around the table and, and just sat down there, and the people, you know, and they they you you would have thought a rat or a snake. <laughs> I mean. The, <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't really know what to do. And it kind of threw the whole discussion into a different kind of... Sometimes it's just fun to play with that kind of them and us a little bit. To poke at it a little. 
It's built on such flimsy issues, such flimsy reference points, may I say. You see, it's built, the possessiveness is love, is built on you and me, this and that. And that's a very poor premise to live one's life. And yet our whole syllogism of life is built upon that premise. Therefore, when you start questioning the premise, the house of cards falls down with it. And you know what happens when the cards are down? There's love. There's a natural bargaining unit. There's wanting to offer the best. There's the natural expression of heart that says, yes, let's come on, let's, let's work on this. Let's see what we can do. It's not built on personal, personal sacrifice, nor is it built on personal preference. And yet, the quality of love, because it is so ephemeral, because it is so... I mean, you can see that tonight I'm just telling a lot of stories because stories kind of give backdrops, give structure to something that's so abstract. It's so difficult for us to understand that there can be a lot of doubt associated with it. And self-doubt is something we can feel. We've lived with our self-doubt our whole life. And so we trust our self-doubt rather than trusting our love. For instance, a, a very good friend of mine, wonderful-hearted woman, who just is a wonderful-hearted woman. We were all sitting down at a dinner party, and she was one of the hostesses, and she was bringing in different things, and the table was clear, and she brought in a dessert. And then she brought in coffee or something. And one of the... And just wonderfully served, you know, served from generosity and heart. And one of the participants at the dinner table said, I, re- I really don't like this, this kind of cake. I can't eat it. I, and you could see the hostess just implode and was through her on this self-doubt. And she went off into the kitchen. And I went into the kitchen. And I said to her, don't you doubt yourself, your love. How can you doubt your love? This dinner party was an expression of your heart. And if someone backs away from it or says something, that in no way diminishes the capacity of your heart. Your heart was there. Don't ever doubt that. And yet we so easily do that, don't we? We so easily constrict around what is immediately seen, immediately referenced, ratcheting down that love. And so much of that ratcheting down comes from pain. It comes because of our whole painful history of love, within love. And many of us have had a lot of jilted hearts. Many of us have been scarred, significantly scarred, through our love relationships, sometimes abused, and the willingness to trust, the willingness to come out again, the willingness to risk that, isn't there. And there's a a kind of sadness of spirit that comes often from that kind of history. And sometimes you look in the eyes as teachers, 
We look in your eyes and we just look for any glimmer of life in there. And that's what we try to feed. Try to put, come on out, come on out. It's safe now, come on out. And it takes so long to trust again. If people knew what they did to people's love and their ability to love, if they just saw it, they saw their actions in relationship to the contraction of the heart, knowing that it may never, that heart may never spring forth again, we would be far more careful of our behavior. Far more careful. And we're seeing our love we're seeing the issues of our inability to quantify our love in society at large and for those of you who know the healthcare field which I was in and I just want to speak for a moment about that because it's so obvious that in this managed care environment, the forms and expressions of care, the nurses doing wound care and offering pills and doing those sort of things, those functional, functional forms of health care are continuing. You don't have to be worried that your wound isn't going to be cared for. But what is being bred out of health care is the relationship, is the time that the nurse spends just with you. The pill will still be given on time. But the relationship won't be there. And the relationship was as much a part of the healing as the pill. What are we doing to ourselves? I had two nurse friends, very different people. One was absolutely functionally perfect. She gave her pill on time, 3 o'clock, boom documentation all written up, but was a little stiff and a little formal in her heart. I had a second nurse who was very sloppy in her documentation, and she gave the pill at 3.15. But she was a wonderful spirit. And this woman, the wonderful-hearted one, was talking about the other nurse and saying, I'm so, I'm so admired, Nancy. She is such a good... She gets her documentation done. She's such a... And I took her, I said, Evelyn, if I were in the hospital, who do you think I would want? That's the bottom line for me. I don't care about your documentation if I'm sick. (laughs) What are we doing to ourselves? You know... Every once in a while, I'll walk into a dying person's home. And they'll look at me and they'll say, how are you doing? Sit down, tell me how you're doing. How'd your day go? Are you been rushed? And I'm sitting there telling them my problems. Suddenly, it dawns on me, aren't I supposed to be doing this to you? (laughs) Aren't I supposed to? (laughs) But there is such a warmth that often accompanies end of life that occasionally, not always, but occasionally there's the reserve of heart 
to reach out beyond their own pain, to hold someone else's. We know that when we're in pain, that's very difficult to do, isn't it? It's very difficult to listen to someone when we're full of our own self-agony. We're just, it's just wrenching. You see, this is where emptiness allows the fluidity of love. You see, it's self-concern. Let me read you a story of such a hospice patient. This hospice patient happens to be nine years old. I learned the lesson of love from Anna, a nine-year-old girl who was dying from cystic fibrosis. I was the hospice social worker. Her mother had recently sought a separation from her father, and her father was in a great deal of pain over both this and Anna's illness. We were all gathered at Anna's bed during a breathing crisis in which the child was craning her neck to force as much air as possible into her lungs. After exerting a great deal of uncomfortable effort, Anna looked up and waved us all out of the room. Being the social worker, I tried to prepare the family for the fact that Anna was probably ready to die and wanted to be left alone. What she was actually doing behind those closed doors was struggling out of bed to reach the table. There at the table, she made a big I love you poster for her father. She then called us back into the room and gave the poster to him. She died about a week later. Her father had the poster framed. When I think of affection, I think of Anna. This little girl was able to free herself from her own fear and reach out to another in pain. Sometimes death and dying can bring a maturity and an understanding far beyond their chronological age. I'll never forget that. She was a teacher. Our teachers come in many forms and many disguises. But a teacher of love is a teacher to remember. And I'm not talking about new agey love, of looking into the eyes and bathing in some kind of... I'm not talking about romanticism. I'm not talking about the extremely, I find, uncomfortable squeezes of love that people try to get from a relationship. I'm talking about clarity. I'm talking about receptivity and clear comprehension of what is occurring. And a trust and a faith in that clear comprehension so that there is no movement of pretension within it. There's no need for pretension. It is in that understanding of the moment just as it exists that love can move. For the product of understanding, the purpose of understanding, in fact, what understanding is, is that love. The ability to hold without distortion. The ability to see free of one's own perception, one's own judgment, one's own criticism. Just to see it. And in this practice of meditation, 
We are practicing that. We are practicing our love. When we are with ourselves, when we are willing to offer ourselves that same quality of understanding, that same quality of attention, free of the biting history of our self-doubt, free of the normal unworthiness and inadequacy that we usually think of when we look at ourselves, free of all the historical references, but just seeing what we are in that moment. We may not be able to quantify it or verify it, but that is the nature of the practice. Not to be able to pull out and say, look, look what I've got now. I've got my love now. Can't do that. Can't cash in our chips as much as we would like to. Because it's all too much of a mystery. There's a statue in Hinduism. And it is Shiva. Shiva is a many-armed god. And Shiva is standing on the back of a human being who is hunched over staring at a leaf. And what that statue says to me is that many of us are so caught in the expression of life, the leaves of life, that we miss the fact that God is standing on our back. We miss the fact that love is present here and now. We miss the fact that we are being bathed in it in this immediacy, in this moment immediately now. We're so interested in where we're going and how we're going to get there from this meditation, in driving and steering and being in the leaves of our future, that we miss the reality of now. That reality is nowhere around but here. That reality is not to be discovered in a week's time. It was as much there when you entered this room as when you will leave it. It's not something to search for, to go to India and do pujas. It is here. It is the elephant on the coffee table, and we're all pretending that it doesn't exist. And so, for us to be able to access that elephant, we must let go of the leaves of our lives. I'm using mixed metaphors. (laughs) And it it isn't working. (laughs) Let's try another route. (laughs) We access. We access. We intimate. We intimate that love, the fullness of love, the fullness of our receptivity. Through our willingness to be with things as they are. Because when we are really, truly with things the way they are, there is the intimation of love. 
through our understanding, through our presence, through the presence, through awareness. And we just keep broadening that out. We just keep pushing that, pushing that out. So there are all the fears and the things that... I lived for a number of years asking a single question. Where is there love in this moment? And every time I asked that, I would come to a bigger space of mind. Something else to hold behind what was being held. Something else, a broader reach, a broader expanse. And the question itself just kept taking me out into the infinite. And it was there in the infinite that the answer was satisfied. And all the different expressions of love, compassion, joy for the growth and gain of another, are all expressions of that love. Compassion is love when it sees pain. Because love does not make things come together. It is the fact of things already being together. It is not a method. It's the reality. And so love knows no restraint. But it knows appropriateness. And therefore, the know of love looks out from the clarity of the vision, from the clarity of the comprehension, and sees what's appropriate to do. It's infinite in its scope, but appropriate in its response. And it does not recoil saying that all things are an illusion, maya, empty, It knows both the truth of that in the moment of the appropriateness, and it also knows the fullness of heart in the moment of the appropriateness as a complete and total human being, and then moves from the consolidation of those two views. Those two are not two views. They become the single view. And it is here we rest. That is all. I'd like to read a final story, if I could. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one, of the, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they, I ask myself? He and this wry mouth I have made. 
who gaze and touch each other so generously, greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say it will. It is because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he pins, bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I, so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss will still work. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. You see, it's not outside of the small things we do in the day. It's not outside of the steps we take and the food we eat and the smile we offer. It's not something so large. It's something so small. It's something so accessible and so practical and so real that it's within all of us, even as we speak here. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.